after midnight, uh, this was arranged for me in advance by the Committee of Concerned Scientists, I would leave the hotel and I would uh, go to where I was told in a dark alley and one of the refuseniks, the dissidents would wait for me there. And then we, we, I would go with him and we collected more dissidents uh, along the way. And we used to end up in a dark attic. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Laparta. Thank you very much for joining me. I've got a slightly longer intro to my guest today because, well, there was just no way I could summarise it in just a couple of sentences. She has quite an amazing CV and we're going to explore various elements of it in just a conversation that ranges over the course of her career. Uh, so just to give you a little bit of background, she's a doctor of chemistry. Uh, and has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in five of the last six years. She's renowned for developing an innovative approach to teaching science using art, music, dance, drama, rap and cultural backgrounds and she's used that approach to engage and educate underprivileged students from around the world including many of whom were homeless. She uh, was telling me the other day that two of them went on to secure their own PhDs, two of the homeless students that she worked with. From 1986 to 2011, she chaired the American Chemical Society's Subcommittee on Scientific Freedom and Human Rights. She worked on human rights cases in the former Soviet Union, in Russia, China, Guatemala, Cuba, Peru, South Africa, Iran, and many more countries. And she met with dissidents in most of those countries as well. After meeting Andrei Sakharov in 1989 and taking his advice, she took a crash course in Russian in order to facilitate her work with dissidents in the former Soviet Union. A great risk to her safety, she succeeded in preventing executions, releasing prisoners of conscience from jail and bringing dissidents to freedom. Since 2001, she's been using science as a bridge to peace in the Middle East. She's president of the Malta Conferences Foundation, which brings scientists from 15 Middle Eastern countries, many of whom are in conflict with each other, together with Nobel laureates to work for five days on solving regional problems, establishing cross-border collaborations and forging relationships that bridge chasms of distrust and intolerance. She's received over 40 awards for her work, including the Presidential Award from President Clinton in 1999, and was honoured four times by the US Congress with speeches about her work in 2002, 2004, 2013, and 2019. She has a phenomenally impressive CV, and I am absolutely delighted to welcome Zafra Lerman to the Connected Leadership Podcast. So Zafra, that's that's quite a, an impressive CV uh, and amazing background. So we've got a lot to discuss. I want to start with the work you've done with underprivileged and with homeless students. Uh, you uh, your your training is a, is as a scientist, uh, particularly in chemistry, uh, and you have a somewhat unorthodox approach to teaching science. Um, can you tell us a little bit about 
how you approach it and how you include all of these different cultural references to engage people? And how did that start? The half percent of the people that will become scientists, it doesn't matter how you teach them, they will become scientists. But we live in a scientific technological society that everybody has to have something in science if they want to participate in democracy. Uh, so I have a, a motto that everybody quotes me that says science education is a basic human rights that belongs to all. Uh, I was at uh, Cornell in Northwestern Universities in the United States, then at the Etihad Switzerland. I came from the Weizmann Institute of Science in Israel, all very high research institution in science. And then I was offered to build from scratch a science department, then I built a science institute in at Columbia College in Chicago that was the majority of the students were minority, inner city, uh, never had science because by that stage Chicago did not require a science class to graduate from high school. Uh, even the faculty that were uh, products of the 60s uh, thought that science is harmful and really the students should not know. It was a school of art and communication. And I knew immediately that any method of teaching that I learned anywhere would not work here. And I realized very soon, and this is a lot of a long story, how I took students when students did not register for my class, chemistry in daily life, and their faculty encouraged them not to register, the faculty from the major department. I realized that I need a paycheck, and I took students to the bar. Uh, and I let them order what they want. And suddenly I heard words like screwdriver, Bloody Mary, Pink Lady. I didn't understand one word what they are saying. And I asked them, what is all that? So everybody told me, orange juice and uh, alcohol, tomato juice and alcohol. So I had an inspiration and I asked them what's alcohol. And they said that it's something that makes them high. So I saw the opportunity to give a lecture about alcohol in the bar, and everybody had on their napkin the structure of ethanol. Being full of success, I ordered for the students a salad and oil and vinegar, and I asked them what is vinegar. Sure, they didn't know. So I said, this is acetic acid. Everybody had that on the napkin. By that stage, I had the whole bar joining the class because they were fascinated. And then I showed them how the 
two can react and produce an ester. And I said, sometimes you can use this product for a nail polish remover. Or they all of them said, so what do we have nail polish remover? I said, no, you need a catalyst for that. Okay, from here, we went into a catalyst. And then I said, if you register for my class, it's 15 weeks. So for you, it's only 14 because you already had the first class. So they registered, and this was the last time I had to bribe students to take (laughs) my class. It became very uh, famous that it's a very interesting class, and I realized very soon that I have to teach in a way that is relevant to the students, that if I start teaching them the structure of the atom, they would not see any relevant to their life. So I used to go uh, reverse from the concrete to the abstract, not from the abstract to the concrete, not from the atom to a nuclear power plant that Chicago is surrounded by, but from the power plant to the nuclear, uh, to the structure of the atom. And then I explained some reaction that they had a problem to understand. And one of my students got up and said, I know how to explain. She assigned a chemical to everybody, and then they danced the reaction, and they said, oh, we understand it now. Oh, I thought this is a very interesting way of teaching and assessing students. To make long story short, then an art student showed an example, and I started teaching by incorporating art, music, dance, drama, rap, poetry, animation, into the teaching, but more important, into the assessment of students. I hated to take multiple choice tests, and I hated that in one hour some crazy multiple choice can determine my knowledge. So I told the students, I will not do to you what I hated to be done to me, so you can show the knowledge in any way you want. Okay, so then somebody was singing and somebody uh, was having a theater group doing a love story between sodium and chlorine to form table salt exactly following Romeo and Juliet. And somebody did the bondfather exactly like the godfather on the ionic bond, the covalent bond. So it became very popular. And then I received a lot of money from the National Science Foundation to take this method into the inner city and worked with teachers. And uh, when it became very popular and I started receiving more money from different foundations, I included workshops for parents because I thought it's important that the parents that never graduated from college or high school feel confident that their kids will take science because they can show the kids that they are different things. So there were workshops for for teachers. And then in order to show that it really works, I persuaded the chair 
of chemistry at Princeton University, an Ivy League school, and the chair of chemistry in Indiana University, that was a Big Ten, a big state school, to join me on developing a course for non-science major that it's titled Chemistry, the Environment in You. Oh, it starts from ozone to oil spill, Chemistry, the Environment in You, and to adapt the method I taught. And this is what they did. And in order to show that my inner city students can be second to none at Princeton, I had money to fly my class every year to Princeton for a joint symposium. And for my students, it was the first time to get on a plane to leave the concrete of Chicago. So it became very famous and the National Science Foundation called it their flagship project. Then I had a student that taught dance in a suburb, very, very poor area uh, with a lot of crime, with homeless. And her parents started a dance studio where these kids came at night and they gave them free dancing lessons. So I came with the idea that my faculty and I will go to the studio and we will teach them concepts of science through dance in the dance studio. And we used to bring food too and uh, coats if needed. And it became a very popular program. And we had hundreds of students attending and CNN came to do a special program on that and showed it around the world five times. Then MSA, what is it? Are they ABC? MSNBC? Not MSNBC, NBC by themselves, right? Because I'm listening so much to MSNBC. I forgot that there is... NBC came and they did a project and showed. And then uh, WGN, that is like a super channel showing around the world, adapted it from CNN and it became very, very popular around the world. And the wonderful news were that this kid really got interested in science and worked hard, and many of them managed to go to college with our help. And I was the head of the Science Institute, so I could take my faculty with me. And to continue for a PhD in biochemistry. And when they were middle school, these uh, kids, uh, we had a conference on science visualization. And always it was in Oxford. And I would show them different videos about uh, how the students visualize science. And one year it was in Mount Holyoke in uh, the States. 
So they uh, said to me, can you raise money and bring 20 to the science visualization uh, conference? I said, I'll try. And I managed to reach the, raise the money. And this time they came by the We brought them instead of showing a video. And then they performed. A Gordon conference is very prestigious. They usually it's between 100, 120 scientists from all over the world participating. And they show them how they visualize science and on the video we have the video you can see the scientists jumping up and screaming bravo bravo and it was interesting encounter because the students were all african-american and the participants were all white so <laughs> yeah. it was a very interesting a lesson with a lot of incidents that happen for both the group, both for my student. They were disappointed because for so long I told them they will stay with the scientists. So in their mind, they are going to stay in five-star hotel. In the Golden Conference, you stay in dormitories, and these dormitories were uh, left to be desired. The temperature was 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and there was not air condition. And they arrived, the scientists were in a lecture, and suddenly somebody from my faculty that came with them came to me and said, we have a mutiny here. And I came and they said, you said we'll stay with the scientists. And here we have to stay in this slum. Slum, we live in slum. We don't have to be. And I said, oh, no, no, the scientists stay here next to you. And I explained to them they are in a lecture. They will come. And I said, they are very successful because they don't care about their accommodation. They care to advance their uh, science. And you should learn a, le- a lesson that very important people don't care where they stay when they can pursue their science. Okay, they settled. And then I showed them their vending machines were empty in 100 degrees. I showed them a room where all the, this is how in a golden conference you have a room And after the night lecture at 10 o'clock, everybody goes to this room and there are soft drinks and snacks and sure enough, uh, whiskey and (laughs) all the rest of that. So I told them, go there. The scientists will be there at 10, so go at 10 and you will be able to have cold drinks because it was very hot. And I came 10 minutes later, and I saw that every one of my students is surrounded by three scientists pouring uh, drinks for them and bringing them. And I said, this is care beyond the call of duty. It must be a result of an incident. So I said to the students, what happened? And they said, when we arrived, 
they pushed us and said, you cannot enter, you don't belong here. Oh, wow. Because they were 20, you know, teenagers. And this was the reaction. And uh, and I said, so how did you get in at the end? They said, we said the password. I said, what password? They said, we said Safra. <laughs> this gave me an opportunity to give a lecture to the scientists, never ever judge a person by the color of your skin. Yeah. So it was a lesson for both sides. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. There's so much there. Um, As someone who, and I've shared this on the podcast before, when I was at school, we had to do one science up to the age of 16. And I did physics because I had to. And I got a very poor grade because I wasn't interested because I had teachers who just taught me what I needed to know without telling me why. I'm reading a science-based book at the moment, and, I, and that's not the first one. You know, I read quite a lot um, because now it's being communicated in a different way, and I think you've really underlined that. And, and you know, when when I have guests on the podcast, very often we pick a theme around the topic of professional relationships, and, and after we originally spoke, I felt I don't need to do that because just by sharing some of your stories, things will come out and what you've done. And it's something we talk about on the podcast a lot. And, and this goes back to um, where you, you met all the students in the bar. You meet your students or potential students where they are rather than where you want to have them. And this is what you have did with the scientists at the end there as well. When, when we spoke the other day, and there's a lot more I want to talk to you about. So We'll move on after this this question, but you shared a story about one particular student with me who um, didn't actually want to study science and was very nervous about presenting her answers to the class. So you got her to sing them, if I remember rightly. Uh, and I thought it was a really lovely story. So- they are very, very interesting uh, uh, story. Uh, this was in college. These students were teenagers, but this was in college. She was 40 years old, and she suddenly showed up in my class, the class that we developed with Princeton from Olden Oil Spill Chemistry, the Environment, and You. And uh, she said, she did, She said, I'll tell you the truth. I didn't want to take a science class. I never had, and I'm afraid of science. But your class fit exactly on the time I had. So I have to talk, take my class. And I said, what are you interested in? And she said, I'm interested in music. I would like to write songs. I would like to sing. And she was an African-American grandmother. So I said, in my class, you can, you don't have to write tests. You can show me what you learn through writing a song and singing. And the whole class is listening and the whole class is judging. It's not one teacher gives a grade and 
there is not always objectivity. So she was very, very happy with that, but she was very insecure. And sure, she was the oldest and she was a grandmother by the age of 40. And then she wrote an unbelievable song on Stop the Air Pollution that was accepted in class, unbelievable. So when the class was ready to go to Princeton for a joint symposium, and I had an unbelievable president, he was a visionary, he was a caring person. If we could duplicate him, all education would be different. So he said to me, if you take these students to Princeton, for a joint symposium on Monday, you fly Sunday and you take them to a Broadway matinee. So they have experience not only in a science class, but they have an experience that they never had in your life. Then take them for dinner and then drive to, to Princeton. And this is what I did. So everybody was very excited. And he, she said to me, I need a letter from you to get permission to go to Princeton. And I was so puzzled, you know. She doesn't need permission from parents. She does, but I did not ask questions. So as an Israeli, it's very hard to control and not to ask. But I did not ask any question, and we went to Princeton, and I, uh, we went first to a matinee, then for a nice dinner, then to Princeton, and she got standing ovation, and it was beautiful. And she graduated, she had a very high grade, and then she continued to really take classes in order to get a bachelor's degree. A year later, I took her out for lunch, and she said to me, do you know to whom you wrote the letter? And I said, no. And she said, to the prison authorities. I was a prisoner. I got six years in prison. And they, for good behavior, they allowed me this slot to take a class. And this is what I did. But your class changed my life because the prison authorities wanted me to go around and lecture about the class and how I went to Princeton and and what I did, and I was released after that. And then uh, our public relation had a reporter from the New York Times to report on her story. And when I read it, I said, thank God I didn't know anything about it before taking her to Princeton. She was arrested with huge amount of cocaine and two automatic guns. And I said, oh, my God, I am sure that I would have been scared to death to take her to Princeton. So good that I did not know. But then she was interviewed on 
ABC in Chicago, and she said, in, she was interviewed a lot, and she went with me to a lot. When I got, I got a lot of awards, so I took her with me so she could tell her story as part of my lecture. And what she said is, chemicals destroyed my life, and a chemistry teacher saved my life. And after that, she got a bachelor's degree on the dean's list, and I encouraged her to continue to a master's degree in arts and entertainment management in case she will have to manage her career. So she got a master's degree. It's a lovely story. It's an inspirational story. I, I would like to think that even if you had known her background, you wouldn't have done anything different. And I think that, uh, sure not, but I would be much more worried, you know. Yeah. yeah. You but, but I think responsibility on students, yeah. Yeah. every one of them. So it was better I did. So 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 moving on, as someone personally, I, I grew up towards the end of the Cold War. You know, I was in my teens in the 1980s, and I actually I didn't tell you this when we spoke before, but I visited Russia in 1986, so probably around the same time as, as you were there, but very different trips. Um, you told me about your work with distance there, um, and I found it absolutely fascinating. You were lecturing officially uh, during the daytime and then somewhat unofficially uh, at night. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this was having the Soviet Union in the 80s, and I chaired for the American Chemical Society, the Subcommittee on Scientific Freedom and Human Rights. In addition, I am the vice president for uh, chemistry for the Committee of Concerned Scientists that deals only with human rights. So I was going to the Soviet Union with a group of chemists, if it was the American Institute of Chemists or a group of American Chemical Society, it didn't matter to me who they were because they were just a cover-up. So, and I used to go and we would be guests of different universities and give lectures and seminars and attend a different function. And after midnight, this was arranged for me in advance, but the Committee of Concerned Scientists, I would leave the hotel and I would uh, go to where I was told in a dark alley and one of the refuseniks, the dissidents, would wait for me there. And then we, we, I would go with him and we collected more dissidents uh, along the way. And we used to end up in a dark attic in somebody's apartment, so nobody will see us. And usually we had like 50 dissidents there, so all of them are scientists. And they were fired from their jobs because they wanted to immigrate from the U from the Soviet Union. So they were fired and then they were blamed that they are parasites because they don't work. Uh, several of them were sent to hard labor and uh, 
we tried to to work on their behalf and and so they were not allowed to continue to upgrade their knowledge they were not a, a, a scientific magazines were not available to them so I brought with me a lot of scientific magazines that it was considered illegal by the authorities and then I would give them seminar in my field or in the, in the field of chemical education and the most important thing was that I collected their uh, CVs, resumes to bring it back to the US. Each of these activities could land me in prison if I would be caught. But there were two things that I was very careful. First, I met at the 80s, Andrei Sakharov, a very famous dissident, and he did not speak English. So I had to speak through a translator. But he said, if you want to do this work, you must take a crash course in Russian so you don't need a translator. So this is what I did, and this was held. The second thing I used to do, I used to look at the group. If there is anybody that looks not frightened to me, um, because I had experiences in China where the group got very scared. So I would identify, usually it was a woman, and I would say, don't ask me questions. But if I'm not here for breakfast, just call the American embassy. And this what happened, and a lot of these people, with all the effort from the U.S., from different committees, uh, many came to the U.S., uh, many refuseniks went to Israel, and uh, I don't know if I told you the story where we were in an American Chemical Society meeting, and suddenly I got a call from two of them, Vladimir and Yosef, and they called me and they said, we are here. So I was very happy and I said, we're here. And they kept on saying, we are here. I said, where are you in Moscow? They said, no. I said, are you in the U U.S., we are here, here. At the end, I said, I don't understand where you are. They said, we are in the lobby of your hotel. <laughs> I just did not know what to do, so I ran down, immediately called the members of my subcommittee, and what they explained to me, that somebody gave the money to go directly to me, at the American Chemical Society meeting that was in the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami Beach. So I said, do you have where to stay? No. And I looked at my colleagues and I said, what do we do? Do I have to leave my room? 
And then one of them said that in the list of hotels of the ACS, there is one very cheap, but is a suite with a kitchen. So we pulled our money together and we went in. We uh, got them a room in this hotel. Then one of our members, Jack Shiner, he went uh, to the grocery store, bought a lot of uh, stuff, put it in the refrigerator, and I told them, this is your breakfast and lunch. And I said, dinner, I'm going to show you where you're going and open the program in every division, organic chemistry, inorganic chemistry, polymer, education, have in the evening a big reception with a lot of food. So I said, every evening you will belong to another division and this will take care of your uh, dinners. But we realized that we have a problem. To get anywhere in the U.S., you need a badge. You cannot. And registration is very expensive. So the chair of the board that was very supportive of my activities, Ernest Elliel, I called him and he came immediately and he said, I will bring you two badges. But one thing I want you to promise me that now we will not have it in every American chemical society. <laughs> so he brought two badges and they could go and listen to lecture and they could go to the reception to have dinners. And then they said, we know that there is a placement center here. We would like to go and see if we can get a job. So I said, sure. And we went there and they said to me, they cannot go in. I said, what do you mean they cannot go in? They said it's for members only and their badge says non-member. I took the badge out of the plastic. I erased the word non. <laughs> I left only the member and I said, where is the non? I don't see it. And they said, okay, to argue with you, it's better to let them go in. So they went in. And then we had a year later a Golden Conference, an American Chemical Society conference in Boston. And I am going down the escalator and up the escalator are two people with suits. ACS is a foreman. So with suits and attaches, and they go up and they scream, Tzafra, Tzafra. I barely recognized who they are. So they came up and they took the escalator down and they said, this is Vladimir and Yosef. We have good jobs in industry and thank you very much for all what you did for us. And we have a very successful life now. That's lovely. That's lovely. So, so you, you mentioned um, you were talking about when you were have, delivering the lectures in Russia, and you were looking for the right That's person. The Union in Russia. In there was no problem. I was in Russia after that. Every year, I was invited to lecture. So, so when you were delivering those lectures, you were looking for someone who you could trust to say, "If I'm not here tomorrow." Um, and you mentioned uh, similar similar experiences in China. So I know that you worked. It was much tougher. 
So t- tell us about China then. How did that come about and, and, and why was it tougher? In the Soviet Union, the families of the dissidents, even the ones that were in prison, were very supportive of us in helping and providing material, and they were part of the team. In China, the families were scared to death to talk to us. And so the job was much, much harder. And the people were very, very afraid after Tiananmen Square. I had friends with China in China, but they always wanted to talk to me only outdoor walking, uh, never indoor anywhere. They were afraid that everywhere we will be uh, taped. So it was very tough, but I encountered more obstacles because the group I went with uh, from the U.S., uh, I don't know how or because my name was, was already known that I do human rights, but they kept on telling me, you will get all of us uh, arrested, you will get all of us arrested, and they were really afraid. And uh, we worked very hard on the case of Fang Liji. He was the father of this for democracy that the students demonstrated. And he was a very famous astrophysicist. And he managed to escape to the American embassy where he stayed for one year. And we worked on his behalf. And after one year, he came to the US and he, he came to me to my office, we hosted him, all the the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, did articles on him. But the most exciting thing was that he could give a speech in Chinese directly to China through Voice of America for my office. But then uh, I was carrying letters from him to, for example, Professor Shu that worked with him, but because he was up in age, they did not uh, put him in prison, but put him in house arrest, and it was very hard uh, to get to him. I managed to bring him letters and bring letters back to Fang Liji, so we knew how to proceed, and uh, in one case, I was invited to give a plenary lecture in a conference on public understanding of science, and as usual, I came with an American group, and I told the people in China, I said, I'm so impressed. And this is true. I said, I started coming to China in 85, where there were no shops, no restaurants, no roads, no cars, everybody with a Mao Zedong jacket in such a short period of time. You you have boutiques, you have uh, shops, you have roads, you have traffic jams, you have... uh, 
uh, all that. So I'm very impressed with all this development that probably is the result of your excellent scientists that contributed to all this development. But I'm very sorry that uh, many of them whom I wanted to be in my lecture could not come because they are in prison. So I would like to dedicate my lecture to them. Oh, my God. All the Americans had their head down, you know, and the Chinese did to me like that. It was very interesting. They gave you the thumbs up just for the people who are listening. The Chinese gave me the thumb up, but the American had their head down. And it was, uh, and they kept on always telling me, you will cause all of us to be arrested. But you kept getting a visa. They kept letting you in. I, to China, I uh, by the early stages, you usually went with a group. People did not go alone to China. All the people that went touring went on organized tours, and the scientists went usually in uh, groups because they did not speak English, so you always needed a guide. And when I started going in 85, we didn't know even where to move. There was only one shop called Friendship Shop, only for the tourists. And the locals were not allowed to enter the hotel. And there were big fences of the, you know, bar, and it used to break my heart how all the Chinese look like that across the bar, and the people that stay in these hotels, they were not allowed to to visit. So I remember the Soviet Union was similar in that you had the tourist shops that you could spend U.S. dollars in. Berioska. I yeah. love doing Berioska shops. Sure. Uh, Leningrad, that is my favorite city because I think it's gorgeous. But I remember till now, no restaurant. We had to eat in the hotels. And I remember the first time I came to the Soviet Union, I was shocked because, you know, we were so frightened and we came to the hotel that was considered then the fanciest hotel. And I asked in the registration, where is the ladies' room? And they pointed out and I couldn't believe it was a hole in the ground. And I said to myself, Oh my God, this is the superpower. We are so afraid. And they did not have soap. We were told to bring soap. Uh, they did not have coffee. Uh, they had a lot of vodka. You could wash yourself with vodka. <laughs> so breakfast was only a dark uh, bread with tea. tea. Yeah, lots so of tea. Yeah, but it was excellent dark bread. But I remember my American group uh, looked at the corner and they saw somebody eating yogurt. 
So they said, why are we having only that and they have yogurt? Go and tell them we want yogurt. So I went in and I said, my group wants yogurt. And they said, yogurt comes only on the fourth day. So I said, <laughs> you have to eat You have to eat that for three days till you will get the yogurt. You, are, you earn your yogurt. <laughs> so so we, 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 we've looked at um the work that you you you've done with underprivileged groups uh teaching science to them and introducing them to that world we've we've looked at the the work that you've done with dissidents what you've really um a lot of your focus over the last decade or or, or longer has been the Malta conference and and, and the situation in the middle east so um can you tell us uh, something about what the Malta conference is and how it came about yeah Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was the chair of the subcommittee on scientific freedom and human rights for the American Chemical Society. And after September 11, 2001, where the U.S. was attacked and the Twin Towers disappeared, I suggested to my subcommittee that we must now turn our attention to the Middle East. And that is extremely unstable part of the world, but the world depends on that because of the oil. So uh, (laughs) there was a big meeting where the board of ACS said that they want ideas out of the box. And we had four subcommittees in the international activities. So every chair presented something out of the box that they suggest. Uh, I was the last one to go because I was subcommittee four. So one suggested to develop a strong collaboration with chemists in South and Central America. Uh, Another uh, uh, subcommittee chair uh, wanted the exchanges with Europe. And then came my term. And I said, I suggest that we organize a conference and invite scientists from all the Middle East countries, Iran, Iraq, Israel, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, all of them. And in that conference, it was in Orlando, Florida, I organized a symposium on a U.S.-Cuba relationship because I took, you know, Americans are not allowed to go to Cuba because of the embargo, but I managed to get a license. You have to get a license from the office of the Treasury to take. So I took seven delegations to Cuba from the American Chemical Society during the years. But I managed in this conference to bring two scientists from Cuba to the U.S. to participate in my symposium. And they told me that when I came with my idea, they were in the room. It looked like an atom bomb was 
fell on the room because such a silence they did not hear in their life. You could hear people breathing, but nothing else. <laughs> and there was silence for a long, long time till they started asking me questions. What scientists from all these countries in the Middle East you want to bring under one roof? How are you planning to do it? And I was telling them and all that. So the international activities uh, of which we were subcommittee voted to accept my idea. And then we had to bring it to the board for approval. And this was another obstacle. Everybody thought I'm crazy with my ideas. And uh, and I said to them, my idea is to bring under the same roof uh, scientists from all the Middle East countries with six Nobel laureates. And they said to me, how will you get six Nobel laureates? I said, I'll call them. And they said, and how will you make, how will you make sure that they will come? I said, I'll stay on the phone till they say yes. So to make a long story short, we had the first conference in 2003 on the island of Malta. Why island? My feeling was that an island is safer than a mainland. So I wanted an island. In addition, it was very, very hard to get to Malta by that stage. There were flights only from Frankfurt, Rome, and London. So everybody had to go through these cities with a lot of delays. So it took a very long time to really get there. So my calculation was that it would not be worse for any terrorist to spend so long to get to Malta to kill a lot of Muslims and few Israelis. So this is why Malta eh, was selected. Another reason was by that stage, they were not members of the European Union or of the Schengen visa. So everybody got the visa upon landing. So the only obstacle for the first Malta, first it was during the second Intifada, the uprising of the Palestinian, where suicide bombers were in restaurants and buses. So all that was a problem. Will people be able to come? Uh, the second was that there's the Subcommittee on Scientific Freedom and Human Rights, many times we had to deal with Palestinians that were prevented from going to conferences. And my fear was, what do I do if they are not coming? Many times we worked on RBF and we got the permission, but too late to go to the conference. I said, I cannot afford it because... The Palestinians and the Israelis are the cake. The Jordanian, Egyptian, uh, Syrian, Lebanese, the people that have brought there, they are the frosting. The other ones are the sprinkling, but for stability in the Middle East, I said, we need all of them. We need all the Arab countries to be part of it. 
what people were very surprised why, and I said, I, I was proven right with Abraham Accord, but I said because this stability will lead to peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But I was very, very worried, how can we have the conference and the Palestinians will not show up? So I, I am a member of the presidential circle of the Council of Global Affairs, Chicago Council of Global Affairs, rated one of the best think tanks. And the deputy in 2003, the deputy prime minister was a Wood Olmel. And he, he was from the right. And he was mayor in Jerusalem, but he was right, and I was always left, so I really never liked him. But uh, he became the deputy prime minister, and he was giving a lecture at 8 o'clock in the morning for the council. I live in Evanston. It's near Northwestern University, because I used to be there. It's 40 minutes drive. At 8 o'clock in the morning, who wants to go for a breakfast? I said, I cannot go to this breakfast. But then I said to myself, what if everybody will do this calculation and the deputy prime minister of Israel will talk to an empty room? I cannot afford it. So I went and he gave the best lecture I ever heard about the situation between the Palestinian and the Israelis. So as he finished, I came to him and I said, Ehud, you gave such a great lecture that I, I just am speechless. And I want to tell you that I always hated you. And after this lecture, I fell in love with you. So he hugged me <laughs> and the services, he had to get to the airport, and I said, yes, he will leave 10 minutes later. And the Secret Service was really annoyed, and I took out a list of 10 Palestinians with their cell phone, and I said, the word, I need these 10 to arrive to the Malta conference. It was not called Malta conference. We gave it the name only after the Malta conference. So they have to be in Malta and arriving with a smile on the face. And I don't hear, want to hear one story about being stopped in any place or anything like that. And instead, I give you my word for that. Uh, he did what he said. The day the conference was supposed to start in the evening with reception and dinner, 10 Palestinians came in, all of them smiling. And they said that they had a smooth uh, way to come to the conference. Each of them got a phone call from Ehud Olmert's office. And the, one was in the bank, one was in a grocery store, and they were told that this person will help them a smooth uh, travel and will deal with everything for them, but in, under one condition, that they have to arrive with a smile on their face. 
English what they did. And this is always the first Malta conference that we had everybody. Now, we don't have an intifada, but we have many, many problems. Malta is now Schengen, and to get a visa for all this group is hell. Sleepless nights. And we tried to take the conference around in 2015. We took it to Morocco because they promised me a visa for everybody. Ah, but as it came close, <laughs> yeah, but we cannot give a visa to the Iraqis and we cannot give a visa to the Syrian. We have ISIS. And I had to fly to Morocco to make a long story short. It does not matter the obstacles. At the end, everybody arrives with every connection and efforts I have to make. But at the end, everybody is in the conference, if it was in Morocco or if it's in Malta. Uh, In Morocco, when we were, it's 2015, we started already talking to many of the ministers there about normalization in Israel. And they were ready on the spot to sign an agreement with us for scientific exchanges. They said, let's do that first thing, and from there we'll go to normalization. We discussed the issue with our participants from Bahrain, UAE, with most of the countries. We raised informally this issue. We tried to stay away from politics in the conference, but in the conference, the scientific part uh, is very important, but more important is the social events. And we try to have as many as possible because this is where the collaboration and friendships that can overcome the chasms of distrust and intolerance are being formed. And we just celebrated the 10th anniversary with a big, big bang with fireworks and because nobody believed we will have the first Malta conference, but for sure not that we will celebrate the 10th anniversary. And I just want to hone in, and I'm aware of the time that we've got, but I think this is a really important point about the Malta conferences. You've brought together the, these scientists from <coughs> 15 countries across the Middle East where we know about a lot of the historical conflict, particularly Israel, with many of the countries that, that would be there, although that's improved in recent years without reference to, to the changing government recently. Um, but there's also other uh, other conflicts that we don't shine sure. as much of a spotlight on across the Middle East. The, the, the collaboration that you're talking about, the friendships that are forged, they're forged across these divides, aren't they? Yes. And as we say, we do science diplomacy, and science diplomacy can overcome barriers of religion, language, uh, culture, what regular uh, diplomacy cannot because we all speak one language and it's science. Uh, when an Egyptian lady scientist was interviewed in the conference and the interviewer asked her, what nationality are you? She said, here we have only one nationality, 
it's science. We all have the same nationality. I love that. It just finding that commonality, finding that understanding mm-hmm. and, and getting around conflicts by that mutual understanding is, is, would you say that that's the underlying principle for everything you do at the Malta Conference? Oh, 100%. But I forgot to mention that on their request, Morocco in Pakistan joined. Pakistan joined because they want to see if they can use this model for Pakistan in India, wow. usually Kashmir. And I was already approached concerning uh, Russia and the Ukraine, and I'm going to Washington, what's today, Monday, tomorrow. I'm going to Washington, and I will meet with a person from the National Academy of Science that is assigned to work with a Ukrainian scientist and discuss it with him how we can do that. So we have in Morocco and Pakistan, they are Muslim countries, but they are not in the Middle East. So, but they join. Well, best of luck. I'm sure everyone listening would wish you the best of luck with with with, with those, those new conferences, those new challenges. Uh, we're coming towards the end. There's so much I want to ask you. We haven't got time, but I've got two questions I want to finish with. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that you've been nominated five times for the Nobel Peace Prize. What does that mean to you uh, on a personal level and on a professional level? So let me tell you, I never said it to anybody because I did not feel that being nominated is a big deal. Receiving a prize is a big deal. But uh, once the the member of the American Parliament that nominated me had a women lunch and she announced it and suddenly everybody made a big deal of that and it started uh, going around. I received a lot of awards in prices, both for my education, for my human rights. I received the Andrei Sakharov Award from the American Physical Society. I received human rights award from the uh, New York Academy of Science. Education, I received in my home in England. Uh, I received the first international award in the New Democratic South Africa from the World Cultural Council, and I received from Malta a lot of award, including the Peace of Justice from the UN Summit in the UN, where I gave my speech in front of the green wall that everybody sees the head of states uh, talking, and they still have my speech that was two minutes on the UN uh, the UN website. Uh, it, it, you know, when I see how people react, I, I just got a call yesterday from my closest cousin in Israel that we talk regularly, and she called and she said, "Somebody just said that you were nominated 
for the Nobel Peace Prize, and I said, no, it cannot be, because I talked to her every week, and she never mentioned, is that true? I said, yes, and she said, why did you not mention? I said, because I did not get it, and this prize is so politically that I probably will not get it, but people are getting excited of the fact that I was nominated. You know, Gandhi, that for me is the symbol of peace. He was nominated 12 times and never got the Peace Nobel Prize, a person like Gandhi. So, you know, but apparently people talk about that. It makes me feel good that a congresswoman in the U.S. and a member of the French parliament think highly enough about me to nominate me and they feel that what I do for human rights and peace deserve the Peace Nobel Prize, but I never knew that you <laughs> I have to share it, but people start asking me and said, and somebody just said to me, there are only 300 nomination every year, and many of them are multiple like mine. Mm -hmm. uh, so from uh, almost 8 billion people, there are 300 nominated. So this is a big deal. I think so. I think it's something to be very proud of. Um, to be nominated once would be incredible five times. I think it is great recognition of everything you've done over the course of your career. So there were four speeches on the floor of the U.S. Congress about the Malta conferences, and they are now in the permanent congressional record. And that's fantastic. So, so we've explored different strands of your career. Uh, you, the, 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 the widening of science to, to communities that it hasn't traditionally necessarily been open to, the, the 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 work with dissidents in many countries, uh, the, the the search for peace and and the contribution towards peace in the Middle East and hopefully in other regions as well. Is there something that you feel ties all of that work together for you? Say again. Is there something that you feel ties all of the work that you've done together? Oh, for sure, it's all tied together. It's growing up and knowing for a very young age that I have to serve. When I was six years old, my father left a letter for me for my birthday uh, in my shoe. And when I got up in the morning, the letter read, today is your birthday, I wish you all the best and I'm giving you this amount of money, which you will divide into three. One, you will donate to the national fund that plants trees in Israel. It's a, <laughs> it's a desert that will plant trees in Israel and make Israel flourishing. The other part you will donate to the children that suffered from the Holocaust and maybe lost their parents and need a, they need money to 
to help them with everything. And the third part you can keep for yourself. And I will, I hope you will grow up to be loyal to your, uh, how did he say it, to your uh, nation, to the, the last one was into your family. But before that came the nation. And uh, so this is how I grew up. So help him. I, by the way, I adopted the school district in Soweto uh, when I received the award in, uh, in South Africa. Soweto is the only place in the world that in one street uh, uh, were born two Peace Nobel laureates, Mandela and uh, Bishop Tutu. Yeah. So, uh, as I said, for me, science education is a human rights that belongs to all. From that, to go to human rights is not a big leap. It's part of what is all together. And human rights and peace, for me, is just one thing. Uh, in order to have peace, you have to have human rights. And uh, so they are all tied together. And they, they tied together to make the world a better place for humankind. Bafo, I, I couldn't, you couldn't end it on a better note. Your, your father planted a seed with that gift that has flourished, not just into a tree, but into a forest over the course of your career. And I really appreciate you coming on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thank you for inviting me and hope to see you, Andy, once. That will be great. Thank you so much to Zafra for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. I, I try and, and take one or two key points out of each of the interviews when I summarise at the end. It, it's so hard to do so. There were so many great stories that Zafra shared. Um, but that I think that that story at the end about giving, in her case, something to Israel, something to the victims of the Holocaust and, and, and keeping something for herself just has built a philosophy of giving and supporting. And, and that lies at the heart of building relationships. And, and I think that when people know that what you're trying to achieve is for a bigger cause, they'll go out of their way to help you. Now, we didn't have a chance to really go into depth to explore um, some of the reasons why people reach out to Zafra and support what she's trying to achieve. Uh, I would need a lot more time to not just revel in her stories, but, but, but go deeper into them. Um, but for me, I, I think that seeing that bigger cause, understanding what she's trying to achieve and it's not for her, um, means that it's so much easier for her to, to bring people over to her way of thinking and what she needs them to do. That and her sheer force of personality. So I hope that you've enjoyed this. It's, it's certainly been um, one of the most engrossing interviews that, that I've, I've conducted since I launched the Connected Leadership podcast over two years ago. Um, and, and that's not to dismiss, I think, some, some fantastic conversations I've had in that time. Um, but I knew from my previous conversation with Zafra that I wouldn't have to say very much. I could just sit back and let her share some fascinating stories. As I always ask, and really, if you're ever going to do, do this, I think this is possibly one of the interviews to do it on. Can you please share this on social media? Tell everyone to listen to it. Leave a review. 
um, and, and just spread the word. And I'd really appreciate it. And join me again next week for an ep- another episode of the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.